And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, April 25th. Derek Van Rypert, you know, Saris here with you on this episode. We recap the weekend, talk about a few players that were added, a few players that were dropped, what we expect for those players going forward. We're also going to take a look at early hard hit rates and try and find some players with some shifting values, focusing mostly on players going in the right direction. Also, a couple opportunities with the White Sox as injuries are piling up yet again. Unfortunately, Eloy Jimenez, the latest White Sox player, uh, to go down with a significant injury. We got a question about the ball. We got a question about micro decisions. And maybe even if we have time, a question about the value of foul balls. So, a lot to get to. Eno, how was your weekend? I was good. We finished uh, the last birthday party for the 10 year old. Uh, but uh, it was cool. He's kind of, uh, it's changed now. All we had to do was put them in front of the video games. Okay. Well, that's pretty easy. So, you had mu- multiple parties. Family and friends, that that kind of thing. Exactly. But the new the new version of what he wants for his kid parties is way easier. We just bought some Mondo pizzas and uh, had a cake, and uh, they played video games. So I was cool with that. That's much easier party to throw. Uh, <laughs> you need to put on a giraffe suit or something and dress up, do that kind of stuff. Do you ever have to do that? Do you have to do the, the dress up as a character thing as a parent? I never did that, no. We usually had to have more uh, sort of activities planned. Like, we're going to do this soccer thing, and we're going to do this thing, and we're going to do this thing. We're going to explore a cave. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's probably not it, but things like that. Let's go see how beer is made. Let's go to a brewery. Oh, that's, that's coming up. <laughs> yeah, that's more, that's more like Eno's birthday, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I think I know how this works, but I'd love to see it again. Moving on. Uh, let's talk about big moves that were made this week. I got deked by the weather on Sunday. I had a nice day at the beach, but it was a little cold, a little windy, but still nice to get out there and just get a Northern break from California, the norm. baby. I'm still searching for a hot beach. I think in Northern California, they basically don't exist. They've got to go to Southern <laughs> California for the hot beaches. And even there, they're probably cooler than you'd expect. But we move on to some big moves from the weekend. I found myself with a lot of Tanner Scott on my rosters this morning. And I think I can trace it back to his worst outing of the season occurring on Sunday afternoon before Fab ran. Anthony Bender dealing with a day-to-day hip injury right now. I was looking at Scott in the pitching model. His numbers actually pop. I've seen Scott pitch before. He throws really hard. He's one of those guys that you don't really believe the ratios could be as bad as they are when you're actually watching him pitch. That being said, there are other players it like him. It is bad command. It is bad <laughs> command. It, it's like it's probably like a Jose Alvarado sort of profile where you just mm. look at him and go, oh, hey. Let me, Throw hard, good could, stuff. This should work. No ideas. And, and it doesn't necessarily work. So the reason I still kept with it 
picked him up all these places because I think that Marlin situation is very unsettled. But I do think it's one where Don Mattingly has hinted multiple times at wanting to find one closer. And if Tanner Scott just hadn't even pitched on Sunday, I don't think those 3% bids would have won. I think other people would have swooped in and got him for 5 6 7%. And I'd be sitting here wondering what I'm doing for saves. So basically, it's a free peek for me. It's a free look at what the Marlins do for an entire week with their saves. If Bender's healthy, if Scott's you know pitching the seventh inning or whatever it might be, maybe he's a drop again next weekend. But I'm finding that I'm willing to take chances on relievers in this situation at this lower price as opposed to the, hey, he got two saves in the last three days and now I'm throwing 18% of my budget on a guy that still might be part of a committee. I saw Matt Barnes get scooped up in a bunch of leagues again this weekend and I, I don't want to play that game at that price even though I know this game leads to a lot of churn on the roster. Yeah, it's true. What's strange for me is that Anthony Bender has lost so much off of his uh, stuff metric. You know, um, he was over 120 last year and he's barely above 100 right now, which for relievers is below average. But you can see that it's possibly true because even though his velo is actually up, uh, if you look at his swing strike rate, it's much worse than last year. He had 11% last year, 11.4, and now it's 74 so something is missing on his stuff, and I think that that makes Tanner Scott like a a great uh, potential guy to jump in there and just take over. I uh, I think I might have bought more Tanner Scott if I hadn't gone pretty hard on Josh Stomont uh, the last weekend, and and I feel that in Stomont I kind of have a closer, so I didn't want to drop Stomont for him. And uh, I've been scrambling for so much for innings that I no longer have a place on my bench uh, dedicated to uh, trolling for saves. So I guess that's good news. It means I mostly have three closers in all my leagues. It's They're not great closers, but they're my closers. Yeah, the other guy that was getting picked up again <laughs> this week, started to get picked up last weekend, is Danny Jimenez in Oakland. And Lou Trevino was out, I believe, on the COVID IL over the last week or so. And Jimenez had a, a save converted, I think, even prior to Trevino missing some time. So on days when Trevino just isn't available because of usage, it looks like Jimenez is at least the next guy up. But I'm wondering how you compare Jimenez to some of the other lower-end relievers that people have been rostering over the first few weeks of the season. I'm not that into Jimenez or Trevino. Trevino's stuff has ticked up a little bit this season, but... Uh, he's showing poor command. Um, I do think he'll take the job back when he comes back. Jimenez has below average stuff, which is really below average for clo- for relievers because relievers are usually have about five to uh, one hundred five to one hundred six uh, stuff plus. So uh, I don't. I, I and just watching Trevino, it's not just the the model. Like just watching Trevino, I haven't um, had that much um, faith in him. Um, what were the other questions? Yeah, just how does he stack up to the other relievers people have been holding? Emilio Pagan, I think, is clearly better than Jimenez right now because it looks That's like, what I'm saying, like yeah. Pagan is wrestling the larger share of twin saves away from the rest of the bullpen, even if he's not the standalone guy. So I, I looked at Jimenez as being just a tick below Scott, relying mm-hmm. heavily on stuff and pushing against opportunity, expecting Trevino to come back and get most of those chances. I just saw a slightly better path for Scott to emerge to be the guy. Uh, and this is the game we're playing each and every week right now. I, I, but I'd rather play it at this price. It's the thing I keep emphasizing is 
2 to 3% of my budget, no big deal. I mess up, I move on the next week. 10, 15, 20% of my budget, I mess up. That's going to cost me a lot more later on when I'm trying to make improvements late in the year. Yeah, uh, you know, I try to buy my closers uh, for less than uh, 10%. Um, I went to about 11% on Stonewall just because I've liked him for so long. And it just seemed like with Scott Barlow's uh, stuff being down that there was a real opportunity there. They seem to uh, prefer a single closer there. So, but, uh, you know, usually I've tried to buy uh, my potential closers for um, more like 5% of my uh, free, free agency auctions money. So, um, and that's that's worked in the past. That's how I got uh, a fair share. Uh, I got a couple shares of Pagan. I was. I really felt almost like I was price enforcing. I wasn't wasn't that into him, but I was like, I will throw you know twenty five bucks out there to see if I can get him. So uh, I think you just have to stay active. The one thing that I have noticed is um, I've done my work and I've gotten to the point where I've got the three closers. Um, but all the leagues where I did make sure I got Romano, I feel a lot better about my closers than the leagues where I didn't make that jump and somebody like Gallegos uh, or Kimbrel is my number one closer. So in those leagues, I just feel like, okay, I got to my three closers, but people are going to be beating me, you know, with Hayter and, and Romano and them. You know, like there's still a, a difference. You know, <laughs> like I'm getting my saves and it'll be fine, hopefully, but there's still a difference. They're they're getting more strikeouts than I am. Their their ratios are better from their closers. So having a little bit of FOMO when it comes to maybe spending a little bit more on relievers. I I'm looking at so many of my teams and I have these amazing offenses and these dreadful pitching staffs. <laughs> and it's it's definitely in leagues where I didn't invest in early closers, but they're not the ones completely blowing up my ratios either. Like there are some misfires in that mid pack group of starting pitching for me early that I just, I need those guys to get back on track. If, if those teams are going to actually win the league, which they, they've got an offense that could win the league. Uh, that's I think apparent right away from the jump. The pitching has to come together. And one solution in, in more shallow leagues where he was available might be Christian Javier. He's moving back into the rotation for the Astros, the first start of the season comes, I think, Wednesday against the Rangers. It's a nice matchup. The only real concern you'd have there is the last time he pitched, he threw about 55 pitches. So it's hard to imagine he's going to throw much more than 70 or 75 in that outing against the Rangers. But skills look really good out of the pen right now. It's been eight and a third scoreless innings for Javier. A 12 to one strikeout to walk ratio. We saw 130 Ks and 101 and a third innings last year split mostly between the bullpen and the rotation. Is there a reason it could be different this time around for Christian Javier? Because the last time we saw him get extensive run as a starter was back in the pandemic-shortened 2020 season when he gave us a 348 ERA and a .99 whip. You know, there's a case to be made it could be better uh, because, you know, everything that he was doing before, he's doing the same in terms of, you know, the action on his pitches and his and his and, you know, just the different physical properties of his pitches, but he's putting them in better locations. I mean, you know, the location plus data matches up with the one walk per nine that he's done so far. Um, and if he if he combines that stuff that he had before with uh, improved command, he could even be better because he had a home run problem. He had a walk problem last year, and he still was so good. The I was looking to see, like, maybe when he went to the pen, he stopped throwing his secondary pitches, but he's mostly a fastball slider guy either in the pen or in the starting rotation. Um, you know, he just uses the curve and change. 
when he needs to to kind of get further into games. So I'm full bore into this. I I'm glad that they managed to get him to you know 100 110 innings last season. Um, so I think he can throw 130 innings, and I think that uh, he's in it for good. Um, you know, I guess there's some question when Lance McCullers comes back. Um, but I think at that point, uh, they'd be lucky to have five healthy guys anyway. So, you know, I think Javier ends up with another 120 innings, 130 innings this year. Yeah. I mean, as long as he's pitching well, it's hard to imagine that they would push him back into that relief role. Six man rotation for now. Jake Odorizzi could end up being the long reliever. That could just be the, they announced it as a six man rotation though for now, but. I just assumed Odorizzi lost his job. So, hey, that might they might go six-man rotation, uh, you know, deep into the season because one thing I found last season when I was looking at the playoffs was it did kind of matter how many depth, how many bulk guys you had in, in postseason series because everyone's trying to just, like, pitch everyone for two innings or whatever or three innings, and then, you know, it does matter if you have guys that are stretched out enough to do that. So you, it might actually make sense for a team that knows it's going to the postseason to have a six-man rotation because then you can just basically piggyback. You could have three starters, quote-unquote, uh, for your games and then have guys that are ready in every game to come in in the third or the fourth or whatever it is because that's playoff baseball now. Mm-hmm. But it's still better to have those guys stretched out. So I could see a uh, six-man rotation being a w- good way to to set yourself up for a good uh, you know, p- p- postseason run. Yeah, would you run it up until mid to late August and then September maybe start to shape it a little better so that way guys are going on more regular playoff, closer to a playoff schedule amounts of rest? I mean, I think that's the... But to me, the downside late in the year with the six-man rotation is that longer layoff between games. That you're gonna, you're not really in the same routine you'd be in, not mm. in the same rest and recovery pattern you'd be in come the postseason when you shorten up. I still don't want to lose Odorizzi for a possible three-inning stint. You know, so if everyone's healthy. You know, uh, that makes it even harder because then they have seven good guys. But what I could do, what I could see doing is um, doing something where you kind of almost have a scheduled piggyback. This is assuming that you're 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 just headed for the postseason, right? And you're not necessarily clawing for, uh, you know, division win or best record in the AL because those things matter. But if you do kind of have some easy coasting, I think what you do is you take Odorizzi and you take Javier and you still keep them pitching three to four innings, but you just you just almost try to schedule it, piggyback them. And piggyback, you know, Lance McCullers and uh, Urquidy maybe and just have those two guys in there. Anyway, this is not useful for fantasy, except that it is. I do want to point out we're in a crazy place for rostering right now. That's why we're not seeing you know guys go de- deep. We have all these extra relievers, and uh, and and this crazy roster will basically be in place till May. You know we're gonna have extra relievers until May, and so then there's maybe the tempting the tempting idea that like oh after May you know teams will have to go to depth and stuff. I don't know. You know, you've shortened that. Yes, they have the five option thing where they can only send guys down to the minor leagues five times, um, you know, after May. But you've shortened the season by then. It's only four four months at that point. I think they could probably play the same games they played last year with getting getting guys up and sending them down, having those extra relievers. I would expect that uh, we have the worst uh, innings per appearance for starters in the history of baseball this year. Not uh, 
not great. I mean, outside of maybe 2020 where it was yeah, short and weird all season. I have repressed 2020 to the best of my ability, so <laughs> let's, not, uh, let's not unpack that if we can help it. Would you rather for the rest of the season have Christian Javier or his teammate who you just mentioned, Jose Urquidy? Mm, yeah, I'm getting some questions about Urquidy. He's hadn't had the best start uh, to the season, um, but you know, still looks pretty good in the model. Um, you know, Javier has uh, uh, a more obvious skill set where he, the things he does are tied to whiffs and strikeouts. So I do think he'll strike more people out than Urquidy. Urquidy's changeup means he's going to get some soft contact even when he's going well. I would I would have them both probably in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, and Javier maybe up a couple spots. Okay. How about Corey Kluber versus Christian Javier for the rest of the season? I'm going to take him over Kluber. Uh, did not look great last time out. Um, and uh, I think that injury is such a concern with him. I would I would assume that Javier actually gets more innings than Kluber. Would that be your assumption? Probably, but I don't think it's by a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's that's a pretty pretty close workload comp for me. How about one thing that's nice about Javier is he probably won't be in New York and Boston and Toronto a ton. I still like the AL West, relatively speaking, for pitchers, especially when you're talking about someone who's pitching for you know, the Astros or the Angels because they're not facing those two teams. And that, mm-hmm. that always carries a little extra weight for me right now, too. All right, one more. How about Christian Javier versus Chris Bassett for the rest of the season? I'll take Bassett. That's a really nice home park. He's going to have some good matchups. Um, Stuff Plus doesn't love him, but the location does. Uh, he's always had good location, good pitch mix, I think. I'm going to still take Bassett, even though the Stuff Plus really favors Javier. I also think that Bassett out-innings him by a fair amount. Yeah, I think Bassett's one of those guys that just let him go as much as he possibly can. can be pretty efficient, too, which also helps rack up that volume quite a bit. I think the, the takeaway here, though, is if you're in a league that allows trading and Christian Javier wasn't available on the wire, you should reach out to the team that has him either to trade for Javier directly or to trade for another starting pitcher if there's another starting pitcher on that team that you like. I think I, think I find that it's, it's often difficult to actually trade for the guy whose value just popped, but it's yeah. easier to trade for someone else, especially well, if there's a buy low. Well, now that you have him, maybe you can get rid of this guy. Right, and I, I think you know it depends on the p- person you're dealing with, but I would imagine you might have a little more success because they they had him on the roster for a reason. They believed something good was going to happen all along with Christian Javier. Therefore, they want to see it through, or they're going to want a premium if they're going to, to trade a player like that. But I think, yeah, we're both excited about what he might bring. I think that 50 to 60 range makes sense for now with an up arrow. He's got the talent to jump even higher. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's get to some early hard hit ball leaders. I was looking at it just from a a volume perspective because uh, as I was clicking around getting ready for the show today, one of the pages I saw was the Rotowire earned auction values page, which at this point in the season, two and a half weeks in, it's a little silly, but Ty France is off to a fantastic start. And I thought I was definitely among the people that said, yeah, he's just kind of oatmeal-y and I'm not really interested. And it looks like I've been wrong about uh, not being interested in Ty France, at least through the first two and a half weeks of the season. Uh, Not surprisingly, with the start he's off to, a lot of hard hit balls. He's got 56 batted ball events, 24 hard hit balls so far. Puts him pretty firmly inside the top 25 overall in the category. Uh, if you had a mulligan, is Ty France among the hitters you'd want that mulligan on? Because I have him, I think, on zero teams this season, and uh, he's been the best hitter in baseball by some fantasy calculators to this point. That's wild. I'm looking at hard hit percentage, and he doesn't show up in the top 30. What am I doing wrong? And he just puts a lot of balls in play. Yeah, it's wild. It's the it's the uh, the DJ LeMahieu effect, right? Doesn't he? Doesn't yeah. DJ LeMahieu sometimes run into that because he hits so many balls? Yeah, I I I generally think that uh, skill set is a little bit overrated. <laughs> um, I, you know, as, as as you see, like it can lead to some bonkers um, batting averages in the short term. And he's, he's, you know, he's, to be fair to him, he's putting up the power, too, the five homers. So it's not just batting average. But um, it's funny when you you see that, all that, and then you see that his barrel rate is basically in line with what he's ever done. And so, to me, I think uh, he's much more likely to end up with, like, 22 homers, even though he's hit 15, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily buy it uh, in terms of power. But he was—he's always been a really good asset for batting average. Uh, he's a low swing strike rate, hits the ball with authority, um, doesn't chase much. So you know, I do think that he'll end up this year with like a three ten average and I don't know something like twenty homers. So it's really not that different from last year. So I don't—I feel too—I don't feel too much FOMO. It's not—it's not off his projections very much. I just thought last year was kind of the, the ceiling for him. If there wasn't more power a year ago, why would there be more power now? And now I'm a little bit spooked in my own assessment based on, on how this season has started. But speaking of DJ LeMayhew, is he back from a skills perspective, a 58.5% hard hit rate? He's got 41 batted ball events, 24 hit at 95 miles per hour plus. I mean, at the very least, he seems to be healthy again. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, the worst swing strike rate he's had since 2012. Uh, so he is maybe trying to trying to swing harder and, and missing a little bit more than usual, but that's still a tiny swing strike rate compared to most people. So, um, I, you know, the barrel rate has never been a big thing for him. And uh, I just wonder with this ball that he's, I don't think he's going to get those oppo uh, homers that he got in 2019 with the juice ball in New York, you know. So I, I think that 26 homer mark will be his high water mark for his career. And we're, we're still talking about 10 to 15 homers for him. He is playing a bit more than people might have expected looking at depth charts when the season started. They've played 16 games so far. He started 14 of them. So with LeMayhew, you're getting starts at first, second, third. He's got one start at DH. He's let off four of those 
those 14 games he's played, including each of the last three. Yeah, what I don't get is that um, the same is sort of true for, for Glaber Torres. I mean, he has 15 games of which 12 are starts. Yeah. Um, and he's he's playing second. He's played a little bit of short. So who's who's losing out on these Yankees? Mm, it's not Kiner Falefa because he's started all but one game so far. I mean, he's the shortstop just stuck in the bottom third of the order. I mean, I think is the trickle-down change here is some of this the absence of of Luke Voigt? Like you, you have Stanton playing a little more in the outfield. Stanton's played in the outfield. I think he started six games in right field out of the fourteen he's played. So they've had to push that a little bit more often. And as a result of, so of using guys the around, DH more, yeah, they're floating the DH more because Donaldson Donaldson DH is basically when Stanton doesn't. I mean that's not perfectly the the core, like, but usually if Stanton's playing right field, it's up. because Donaldson's but, DHing. Yeah, and that opens up basically a spot on the infield. Yeah, so that's how they've been able to do it so far. And then other guys get occasional days off, except for Kiner Falefa. He plays every day. It's working out pretty well. And, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah Kiner Falefa does offer this lineup a little bit of a different look than it has. I mean, it's, it's a little bit DJ LeMayhew-ish, but at least there's two of them. You know what I mean? Like two guys who can make a lot of contact, uh, you know, can hit you some singles when you need them, right? Because a little bit of a of a swing and miss go for the homer offense in the past, so I think they probably did that on purpose uh, with that trade where they where they got IKF in there. Um, but uh, their catching situation is a mess. Um, Kyle Higashoka was hitting balls real hard in spring, but uh, he's got a minus nineteen WRC plus right now. So I guess maybe they're just uh, there's they're more like other teams where they're like, hey, we're gonna have one spot as a negative. It'll be catcher, you know. That's whatever. You can live with it, and you can figure it out later. Those things are are absolutely just fine. The pitching depth in New York is amazing. I just want to say this off the, uh, you know, this is off off the charts, off the uh, rundown, but. Uh, you know, Clark Schmidt and Michael King are exactly, I mean, even Nestor Cortez are exactly what this team needs, you know, in terms of guys who can give you some innings and guys who have surprising uh, stuff that's really, you know, it's really good. Michael King, whatever role he's going to be in, he's going to be an opener. He's going to be a bulk guy. He's going to get them. I bet you he gets them a couple more saves. He's going to end the season with like six wins, five saves, uh, you know, 90 innings and 120 strikeouts or something ridiculous. It's going to be a really good season from him, but people will never know when to put him in their lineups. Yeah, Clark Schmidt is 26, by the way. Like, I, I For some Perfect reason, timing. in my mind, I, I don't know why. I mean, he, he was a first-rounder. He was drafted out of South Carolina. He went to college. I just thought he was a high school prospect for some reason. I think it's because he was hurt all the time. Like in in my mind, like that reprogrammed Clark <laughs> Schmidt's bio to be a high school kid. Oh, he's 26. And I think when you get a guy like this who's dealt with so many injuries and he's 26 years old, I think you're a little more willing to push him and just say, "Let's just see what happens." You know, we're not we're not playing the long game for his age 31 season. We're just trying to make him <laughs> yeah, as effective right. as we can possibly be. <laughs> So we can push and at some a point. Bit. We just, as the Yankees, as an organization, we just need a six starter. You know, like mm-hmm. we need a, an actual six starter. And Clark Schmidt is that guy this year. I think. You know, Michael King is close, but I think Michael King is 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 a band aid, or is it a band aid, a, a solve all, like a like a like gorilla glue, neosporin, yeah, duct tape. 
Are, duct we, are tape. we fixing a wound or are we taping together <laughs> PVC pipe? No, I like the duct tape one because it's just it just wherever you need him, you know. Whereas I think Clark Schmidt is a little bit more like I think they do want to be a little bit more careful in like giving him a lot of rest days and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he's more like the six starter. And uh, King, you know, you could call him the seven starter or something, or you just call him, you know, the Gorilla Glue. A couple more hard hit rate surprises. How about Sean Murphy? 23 of 45 on batted ball events, so over 50% for his hard hit rate so far. And he's got a top 10 max exit velocity. Uh, And because he is an A, he is hitting third or fourth most days. He has started 17 of 17 games so far. They DH him on occasion, I think, of those he's, starts. He's got five starts as a DH. So when he's not catching, he's playing. So not only is he hitting the ball hard, he's playing a lot, and he's in a prominent spot in this uh, rebuilding, this duct tape together lineup. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be rude to anybody, but I think he's the only good hitter in Oakland. It's possible. I go to these games and I look at these lineups, and I'm like, I don't think, I'm not sure any of these guys are major leaguers. Pache is is close but and he's he's on this list he's actually right there tied with murphy and he's got basically the same hard hit rate but he has none of the good swing swing decisions mm-hmm. i don't think he has a walk yet this year yeah so like murphy murphy's easy like murphy is the kind of guy that if he wasn't drafted in your 10 team one catcher league you picked him up already, or someone probably picked him up already. If he's still available, yeah, there's, he's there, an upgrade. There's nothing actionable. You can buy high. If you want to buy high, you can buy high. Like, this you, is this is the real Sean Murphy. Well, I think you can buy high because the playing time is going to be top of the charts, the way things are going right now. He's going to possibly lead catchers and plate appearances this year, and he's not going to waste a large share of them, which some catchers would yeah. if they were playing, playing that much. So uh, I'm in on Murphy. I, I liked him going to the season and got him a few places and happy to see what he's doing. I think Pache is a really difficult player to figure out because I saw him get dropped in my 15-team big league this weekend. I talked about him with Al a little bit on Friday on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast as a possible pickup, but you're buying an ugly line and you're buying these underlying numbers. You're buying a hard hit rate above 50%. You're buying a 12% early barrel rate. And the question comes back to, should you be willing to look past the bad surface numbers and Tell yourself, look, the A's are going to give him all the playing time. If he plays better, he'll move up in the order. If he doesn't, he'll stay low in the order, and maybe the counting stats will lag. The problem we've had with Pache, going back to his time as a prospect, is the lack of success on stolen base attempts. He would run a lot in the minors, but he wasn't successful nearly enough to earn a lot of big league green lights. And one of the things that is sticky in early season going, and this might be interesting to people, is stolen base attempts. Uh, that's a, a team-wide thing that becomes meaningful early, and it, it's a player-specific thing. So he hasn't even attempted one yet. Yeah, who do you yeah, think? Seventeen uh, games in, how many times? Is he, how many is he going to attempt? If he attempts one every twenty games, how many? How many stolen bases does he get? It's not enough. It's just yeah. not enough. Stolen bases attempted so far this season. The Angels. The Angels are 12 for 21. Your go-go Angels. Oh, man. Go-go right into the outs. That's good. You know, Brandon Marsh looks really good. If you look at quality of contact, if you look at reach rate, I know that he's seeding at-bats to lefties to Joe Adele, but Brandon Marsh, um, 
looks really good. And I think there's if there's one more injury, then Joe Adele becomes you know they, Marsh becomes a, a regular and you know everyday guy, and and Adele becomes that that guy who steps in. So uh, Brandon Marsh on a team that likes to run a lot is running strikeout rate is down, reach chase rate is down, the barrel rate is up. I mean Brandon Marsh is a guy I would buy looking at this kind of analysis. A couple other guys I would buy still Christian Yelich. Has a 150-point differential between slugging and expected slugging. 60% hard hit rate. Great barrel rate. There's this whole analysis on Sunday night, if you watched, where they were, you know, dissecting his 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 foot tap and and how he's late on balls, and that's why he's hitting the balls hard, but he's hitting on the ground because he's late. There is some truth to that type of analysis because. Um, mostly, you get the ball out front, you pull it, and you pull it for power. If you let the ball travel, uh, you mostly hit grounders uh, and and hit the other way. So there could be some truth to that. I just don't think. I, I think it's preferable to have this problem with Christian Yelich than the old problem, right? <laughs> like this problem is maybe he's uh, we're talking about three or four inches in terms of where his contact point is. Otherwise, he's hitting the ball well and he looks healthy. In the past, it was he doesn't even look healthy. You know, right. So I'm definitely willing to buy this version of, of Christian Yelich. What I'm trying to look at with Yelich too, this is pretty strange to me. He's got the O swing percentage nice and low. It's been low even since the struggles started back in the shortened season, like a low 20% range. Striking out 30% of the time with an O swing percentage near 20%. It's rare. It's kind of like when you see the bloated ERA over a full season's worth of innings next to a pretty good whip. You see like a 450 ERA and you see like a 118 whip. And you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> those two numbers don't go together. That, that's kind of how I feel about the, the K percentage right now with Yelich with that O well, swing still being good. One thing we've seen in the past from him is that he he sometimes benefits from being more aggressive. And so mm-hmm. you have this normal thing, this normal thing that every hitter does like as a as a group as a league you swing less in april and then you become more aggressive as the season goes on and that meshes well with how the ball flies in order for august is when offense peaks right and so i think that you know if i see a guy with a low o swing and a low swing rate and then a high strikeout rate i think that is actually one of the few times where i say you know what this guy needs to be more aggressive you know, he needs to, he, he doesn't have, he's letting too many called strike threes go by, right? He's being too passive. He needs to sort of swing out in front of some of his swing decisions. So um, I think that there there could be that sort of heating up with 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 Christian. So I, I buy him. And I'm not as worried about Carlos Correa's barrel rate. There were some questions to me. One question was an interesting one. You know, here's a, who would you rather? Uh, would you rather Carlos Correa or Fernando Tatis rest of the season? We're still a full month, at least, away from Tatis, right? Yeah, and I think that in, embedded in that question is, you know, are you really worried about Carlos Correa? I'm not that worried about Correa because I think Correa's profile as a hitter is one that not only ages gracefully, but doesn't seem to have a very wide range of year-to-year outcomes. I think it's a more narrow set of lines you get from him. I think the variance you get from Correa is injury-related. It's not mm-hmm. the way he plays. And yet he's hit a ball 113 this year already. So, you know, he wasn't injured when he hit that ball. Have you been to Minnesota a, this month? Yeah, right. The weather is 60, not 60% great. 60% hard hit rate for Correa still. So, I, you know, I think he's I think he's set to, to go. 
Um, there, I am working right now uh, with Ken Rosenthal on a piece about the ball, and I don't want to cut that one off at the knees too much, but I will say um, that uh, offense is down across the board. So to to some extent, if, if a guy's a little bit off of where he was before, um, that could explain it. Uh, and offense is down a little bit more in Humidor uh, Stadium. So I'm going to have to look at that if you want one little nugget that I just found. Um, the batted ball distance on barrels in places with that already had a humidor is down two feet. Okay, so that means there is something other than the humidor that's also going on. But in places that didn't have a humidor last year and have a humidor now, the weighted difference, and this is weighting all the differences by how many you've, you've seen, how many uh, ba- barrels there were, the weighted distance is down 10 feet mm. in parts of the humidor. So uh, that's, uh, you know, that's not necessarily all of Correa's problems because he has a 3% barrel rate. So it's not like he's barreling tons of ball and they're all dying at the warning track. However, he is in one of those parks that has added a humidor. And my theory, my working theory is that this, the, the effect of the humidor will change over the season and that in a lot of places we're taking dry balls uh, that have been stored in a winter situation and we're basically adding water to them using the humidors. And that's that would be consistent with, I think, uh, what would be happening at Target Field. It seems appropriate to bring this question up. This came in on Twitter from Chris. Chris writes, do y'all think the ball always fluctuated and we just now have the data to recognize it? And as a follow-up, do you think we keep the dead ball all year? I'll hang up and listen. Thanks. Yeah, 100% he's right. And I the, the year that I think of uh, always is 1987. Uh, let me just do a little... 1974. Since 1974, we had... Uh, that's when free agency started. Uh, we've got... Um, you know some of the 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 biggest home run years. Can you can you guess? I mean, the one is super easy. We just had it, and it was it broke all the records. Oh, 2019. 2019, the rabbit ball year. Uh, but then you've got so then you've got uh, some other juice balls years uh, in second and third. 2017, 2021, um, 2016, and 2018 are in there too. So like that's the juice ball era, right? Five era, of the yeah. five of the six <laughs> uh, biggest home run seasons of all time uh, uh, fit in there. But then you've also got uh, 2000, 2001, which people, you know, 1999, people thought of that as a um, as like a steroid thing right that's, sure. is that the steroid era the late 90s uh to the early that's the other uh biggest uh, home run rates but then it's really funny because you're going along it's all 2000s and you know and recent and then like kind of steroidy and then um the the only season that starts with an eight you know in terms of 1987 is 25th in home run rate of all of all time is 1987 uh, and it's snuck in there with you know between 2014 and 2011. You know what I mean? It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And if you look at it, you know, sort of season to season, uh, 1986, 1985, uh, there were 3,600 homers. In 1987, there were 4,500 homers. Yeah, per game, per team game. In 85, you had 4.33. 
Uh, I was run, I'm doing runs per game for a second. 4.33 runs per game. Then it was 4.41. Then it was 4.72 in 1987. So offense exploded. Yeah. And then it dropped into like the 4-1 range. For and then it just went right back to where it was before. Yeah. Like in 1988, it was 3,200 3, homers. So it's like, what? It went from 4,500 to 3,200 homers. So yes, 100%. 1987, uh, there were some other things. I think they changed the strike zone a little bit. And um, I don't know... Uh, I don't know how close that is to expansion, but um, uh, it's pretty obvious, like that something happened to the ball day. <laughs> yeah, like there was a little bit of a run up to it, but it was the first time in Major League history that there was one home run hit per team game for yeah. a whole season. Again, and it dropped by 0.3 homers per team game from '87 to '88. It went back to <laughs> what baseball looked like for most of the '60s and '70s, which highly unusual and then as you mentioned you know expansion was 93 so there was an uptick in, in offensive production or a decline in pitching quality Wasn't or both there expansion coming off of 81 or 82 like the, i thought there was a lot of expansion coming off of labor problems so like 1977 was an expansion year what was the met wasn't there an 80, 80s mets uh 1969 was an expansion oh, year from mets. 20 to 24 and then 1977 we went from 24 we didn't to add anybody in the 80s nope all right. So then the 90s was Arizona and Colorado. Colorado in Miami first in 93, uh-huh. and then uh, Arizona and Tampa Bay in 1998. There you go. And you All right, tend so to see no real explanation for 1987. <laughs> no, no, that one doesn't have a lot of clear explanations, uh, at least was coming to our minds. I mean, we were pretty young back then. So I th- there's a there's an underlying sort of. Um, there's an underlying thing there, which is like, should we, should we not get as bothered about it? Right? Like, is that the sort of, there's a little bit of underlying idea that like, well, this has been happening forever and we just, we're chicken liddling about it now because, you know, we can measure it. Mm. Um, But I, and I, and I, I guess I understand that and that's cool, but we can measure it. And so, and, and it does seem like baseball wants to become more consistent. They talk about consistency, the humidor is an effort at consistency. So, you know, I think that we'd like it to be consistent. And I think it is a little bit weird to have large jumps in home run rates and, and declines like we had in 1987. Like, I don't think that it would be good for baseball if a year like 1987 happened every two or three years. Right, because then you, then anybody who broke a record in one of those years, everybody would be like, ah, but he did it in that, he did it in one that that one year, you know. Yeah, we get that feeling about 2019, both with you know, major league numbers we see and with minor league performances at AAA that year, since the AAA leagues were using the big league ball, and we know that those PCL parks, especially with the elevation and hot, dry conditions, play extremely hitter friendly. So there are some seasons you look at and go, oh, that was nice, but it was probably only 80% as good as it looked on the surface because (laughs) a lot of that came from just the ball being different that year. I I don't think I'm being an alarmist. I don't think anyone who's bringing up the lack of offense early in 2022 is being an actual alarmist here, though, because as I mentioned on the 3-0 show last week, if you look at the league batting average, we don't care that much about batting average in general, but just as a way of seeing how many balls in play are turning into hits, the league is hitting 232 entering play on Monday. It's the lowest ever. It's the lowest in 150 years. It's five points lower than 1968. That led to changes in the game. Uh, next lowest season was 1888. I mean, that's like the Oyster Burns era. So we're going way, way back. We, we don't We don't want the league to hit 232. That's not a good product. Now, I think 
the humidor, the lockout, messing up spring training, cold temperatures. That number is not necessarily stuck at 232 all season. But imagine imagine if we had made more changes all, all simultaneously. Now, the other changes the league talks about, banning the shift, that would swing things back in the right direction. right? If we get to a point in 23, 24, and you can't shift anymore, batting averages are going to go up. Right? Hits per game are going to go up. They just will. More balls in play are going to find gaps. So each tweak is going to keep moving this around different ways. And I think as long as we're keeping the the big changes isolated, at least we can have a better understanding of what exactly is happening at each layer of the change. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty complicated. It's it's getting really uh, sort of granular right now. And it's an interaction, I think, between the humidor and the new ball uh, that's going on right now. So, um, you know, you, that's one thing that I like. I like when you make a change and you make one change and then you isolate that change and you get to know that change really well and you say, okay, that's what that change did. It's a little bit tougher when baseball makes like three changes in one year and they're like, okay, we're going to do humidors everywhere and we change the ball. And you know what I mean? And it's like, ah, uh, which is which? What is happening here? And it's kind of hard to tease it out exactly. But uh, we're going to try that for you. Uh, coming up uh, tomorrow or Wednesday, we'll have a piece out on on this. But it's not it's not your imagination that like definitely offense is down. <laughs> yeah, the runs per game so far this season four point oh two runs per team game. That is the lowest we've seen. Scrolling, 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 mm-hmm. all the way since nineteen seventy six. And like baseball was really different in nineteen seventy six than it is right now. How many strikeouts per team game do you think there were mm. back in nineteen seventy six? So you really don't want to take like the run scoring environment of 1976 and then add the strikeout environment of 2022. <laughs> like that's not that's not what you want. <laughs> yeah, and Angel Hernandez is not helping the cause either for what it's worth, boosting oh, up strikeouts Lord. in ways that look, I I'm a Brewers fan and that was just like <laughs> everything Kyle Schwarber said and did showing him up was deserved. Yeah. Fully deserved. Strikeouts per game in 1976 per, per team game 4.83. Now we're at 8.57, right? We've lived yeah. above eight for the <laughs> yeah. last seven Double the seasons. strikeouts, but we're still only going to get four runs per game. Mm. Doesn't seem great. I mean, obviously, we've optimized for power, and, and that's why we're still scoring this much. That's a fair question, too. Like, will that will that create uh, the incentive for people to go back to Slappy McSlapperson a little bit, you know? Uh, but I kind of don't think it'll work that way, man. I just, I think the home run is still the best thing a hitter can do. And they're going to try and hit home runs. I, I think that worm has turned. Like it's, that's, I don't know what that means, but, uh, to me, it means that, uh, you know, we're not going back. Yeah. Worms don't you know? turn very often. So once they turn, they, have that's it. That's they've it. committed. We've looked this one up already, you know, Jesus. Uh, but yeah, the, the, it's just not like you're not you're not going to tell today's kids to be like, no, you know, you know, we we were you're the you're like middle school coach was right. We all we want from you is line drives the opposite way, you know, on the ground. <laughs> Take a nice level swing. I don't I don't think that. I, and if it did happen, I think it would take. 10 years you know what i mean like to how undo long it, it yeah you you got all these people coming up through the through the minors that have been taught this way in one way well and in thinking about it from the 
if I had my way and we we tried to play a season where hitters walked on ball three, I mean, on the athletic baseball show, Keith said, Keith Law said, they're just going to walk. They're just going to stand there and draw the walk because guys aren't going to throw enough pitches in the zone. And my thought was, I think guys would be in the zone more and they're, they're nasty enough to at least induce weak contact. Plenty of guys get swings and misses in the zone. But if he were right, if Keith were right, That'd be an unwatchable disaster game. Walk after walk after walk. That's not what you want either. And in fact, I'm I'm working on a piece about that. So, <laughs> but if you did, if you did get the change you wanted at the big league level, that walking on ball three does not work at lower levels where command is worse. Right? At least mm. not without an expanded zone. You have to make the zone big enough for the pitchers at whatever skill level they're at to be able to hit it. Like that's the only only real chance you have. If you make a change like that, I think you're right. It takes a long time for young players to catch up, for everyone's approach to to catch up. And I, I think you're still looking at the home run being so rewarded relative to everything else that you're still going to be optimizing for that. Yeah, I mean, it's like a board game where you're like, oh, that one card lets me just like destroy all your guys. Like I'm, I'm learning magic, the gathering now. My kid's into magic. So. Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh, what? That card can do what? <laughs> yeah, that's a great card. I want a card like that. <laughs> so you're out here buying cards on the internet to beat your kids in Magic the Gathering. Is that what this <laughs> comes right. down to? <laughs> I need a I need a plus ten plus ten guy with death touch. Yeah, you <laughs> to beat my to, my to beat my son. <laughs> Spending Here's hours, $200, please. <laughs> hours online doing the research, finding these optimized cards. Your kids are sitting there like, what? Why? Why does what's happening? <laughs> They'll catch on. They're smart kids. They're going to catch on. <laughs> and now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. A couple more questions, at least one more question to get to uh, before we go. Micro decisions, a question from Tim. Tim plays in a daily league. 
So you know, obviously a lot of us play in weekly leagues and in there you got to consider number of games you have, opponents, lefty, righty, all that kind of stuff. But in a daily league, the questions are different. So assuming you know that all the hitters in your team have a game on a particular day, let's call it Tuesday. Usually every team plays on a Tuesday and all your hitters are starting. What kinds of things do you prioritize to decide who is in your fantasy lineup that day? Obviously, you have the skill level of players. How do you balance things like what park they're playing in, recent performance, starting pitcher that they're facing, how the hitter performs in splits against lefties versus righties, if there's not anything else to go off of, like if you like BVP, batter versus pitcher, I don't think you or I really lean into that very much. Uh, is there any sample size large enough for history against a specific pitcher to matter at all? Do any starters go deep enough in games for handedness or history against them to matter? Is there ever a scenario in which you'd bench an Aaron Judge for a Bobby Dahlbeck? That is an extreme example, but I wonder how much I micromanage my team versus just letting the best players play every day. So you've played, I think, a few more daily leagues than I have, but we are in one this season. The 3-0 show league that we started this year is a daily moves league, and these are questions that we do have to think about as we shuffle players in and out of the lineup. Yeah, I think that one thing that can happen is you can kind of look to baseball itself and the way teams use players to kind of get a sense of how often you should be platooning. Obviously, you have the ability to platoon more than a baseball team because you're not you don't have the same roster restrictions. But if you notice that a hitter, uh, when you notice that a hitter sometimes sits, uh, Brandon Lau versus lefties. Um, who are some other guys that sometimes sit against lefties? There's uh, there are some pretty good players. Verdugo sometimes, I think, sits against lefties. Trent Grisham? Trent Grisham sometimes sits against lefties. If they sometimes sit against lefties, that's a big, big warning sign. And I think that that also gives you a sense of where the talent level is. Like, I am not, you know, benching Aaron Judge. So there will be players on my teams. I'm just not going to bench. I don't care what the matchup is. I don't look at what the matchup is. These are my stars. I think that maybe top 50 hitters are like that. Is that a good way to sort of think about it? Yeah, there's probably a point. I mean, I'm looking at my my 3-0 show roster right now. Like Will Smith, the catcher, I don't have a second catcher. So he stays in. Kyle Tucker always stays in. Yeah, even if Todd Tucker's struggling, he's yeah, a, he's he a, stays in. Pete Alonso always stays yeah, in. It doesn't matter on the in. matchup. Uh, we get down to like a Matt Chapman. I like Matt Chapman a lot, but in a daily moves league, Matt Chapman can probably sit against a, a tough righty if I've got someone else on my bench who has a platoon matchup that you know looks a lot better. I, I don't know how much I think about park factors on a daily level. I mean, I, I think if it's a really Colorado, like, yeah, like an extreme park like that, I'm, I'm looking for guys to play in Colorado. Uh, I'm looking for. I, I'm looking at if I'm looking at that though it's probably like for a non-Colorado situation I'm looking at that as one of my last factors that I'm considering. I think the handedness of the opposing pitcher matters a lot. Handedness and quality. I think I would go handedness first, quality of the opposing pitcher second, and then uh, quality of park third. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a good general way to go about it and i realize these are some of the questions you start to think about in like a daily fantasy sports contest too but the difference there is that you have to consider what the rest of the pool is going to do in a contest so mm-hmm. there's there's a leverage component that's probably more important than any of those individual factors because you're accounting for those factors but everyone else you're playing against for the most part is accounting for those factors so then you have to get an edge doing something different than what everyone else is doing fortunately in a season-long daily moves league that is not part of the decision-making. You're just focused on each individual decision. But I think that's a pretty good basic rubric to, to follow. I also tend to do this in the outfield more. 
uh, because I just think it's harder to have, like there's certain positions where it's just really hard to find a left, like a left-handed shortstop. There are some switch hitters and stuff, but like there are just certain positions where it's just harder to find a platoon pair where you're like always, oh, I can always put this guy in or this guy in, right? So what I try to do generally when I'm building teams is have a strong infield. And then if it's a daily team, I don't mind having like six or seven outfielders. So the 3-0 show, for example, um, I don't really muck around with anybody on my infield with like Goldschmidt, Albies, Jose Ramirez, like, you know, Rizzo. I don't touch those guys. They're always in. But my outfield is uh, Benintendi, Buxton, Gritchuk, Peterson, Jock Peterson, Verdugo, uh, Pollock, Suzuki, and Seth Beer. That You hear a couple, right? Like mm-hmm. the Seth Beer, I never play against lefties. I don't even think he does play against lefties. Uh, Verdugo, I will sit against lefties. Jock Peterson, I will sit against lefties. Um, and then Grichuk, uh, I'm mostly playing in Colorado, but it also depends on if Jock Peterson's seeing a lefty and Verdugo's seeing a lefty. So uh, that's sort of, and I think Suzuki and Buxton and Benintendi for the most part are the guys that are almost always in there. But Benintendi's also uh, a little bit, uh, you know, touch or go. So. That's. I think that gives you a sense of the talent level I'm looking at, what I'd be looking at. Like Grichik will play uh, in Colorado over you know some of those other guys. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm cracking up my team in that league by the way because it's hitting 200 as play begins on Monday. I'm looking at my roster. Like these guys Yay. aren't bad. Why are they hitting 200? This is bizarre. Blame the ball. It's the ball's fault. I did nothing wrong as the GM. <laughs> I, did I didn't. Nothing wrong. I didn't take on too much risk. I didn't. I didn't have too much fun with this. It was the last team I drafted. I thought, ah, I don't have a bunch of these young players. Everybody seems to like. So let me just let me just get on oh, board. Did you yolo that draft? Yeah, nah, no, only only a little bit. I, I like the pitching that, <laughs> that roster a lot. I I did the opposite. I pushed a little more pitching in that league, and I waited and, and went fun hitters. And I have the opposite problem of all my other leagues, which is. You know, find some balance, I guess, is the the takeaway there. But uh, thank you for that question, Tim. A little pitching plus nugget from the weekend. I know it was a start in uh, Oakland, um, and he didn't have amazing numbers last year. But Glenn Otto has a 106 stuff, 103 location this year. Hmm. And he improved the ride on his four seam and the sweep on his slider. Uh, so there's a lot of changes under the hood. I think that this might stick. And so there is a flashbang whiz pickup of the week. Yeah, if he didn't go already, I saw him get scooped up in my 15-teamer. I need pitching. I didn't want him on my roster this week because I think of the matchup he's... against Houston. That was a mistake. I should have just picked him up and stashed him instead of Tanner Scott. I've yeah, I've stashed him a couple places, mm. and then I'm starting him because Houston hasn't been amazing either. Um, and then, uh, uh, but he's, he's valuable in 12 teamers. I think he's, uh, I think we're talking about, uh, I'd rank him in the seventies. All right. Well, that's, that's actually really good if you're desperate for pitching. So regrets for me, hoping I can still find him in a couple of the leagues where I need him. Uh, last question here, opportunities with the white Sox. I mentioned it up top. Eloy Jimenez, like he's going to miss a lot of time again, six to eight weeks. I think was the first timetable I saw I'm thrown just really out there. Disappointed because it didn't look, I mean, I know it, people will say like, it looks bad because of his reaction, but the thing he did, didn't look that bad. He just ran to first and kind of a little bit awkward on the base. So it's I, concerning. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm upset about that a little bit. It makes me it makes me like I I you know you listeners know like and you know that I I don't like to put the injury you know the injury tag on anyone, but 
you know, there's, there's like now these two injuries that have taken him out for a really long time that you're like, okay, you did what? Stepped on the bag. That's it. It's definitely a concern. Now you've got an opportunity for Gavin Sheets to possibly play more. We got Yon Mankata still dinged up right now. And I think prior to the weekend, there was a report that he's still feeling something in his oblique when he swings from the left side. So Jake Berger keeps filling in there. Uh, we looked at the White Sox depth last season and we had questions about it. Do you think their depth is improved? And is there any way you can squeeze some value out of Sheets or Berger or anybody else who might get to play more with the injuries that are starting to pile up for the White Sox? I like Berger a fair amount. I mean, he's hit the ball at 114 again. He hit the ball 115 last year, so he's got the raw power. Uh, the barrel rate for his career is 10%. That's pretty good. Uh, it's not a really robust sample or anything, but uh, you know, it matches his minor league uh, stats and the ability to make uh, powerful contact, although maybe not that often. So I think you've got your sort of you know prototypical 230-25 homer hitting guy uh, in Jake Berger. So that means more homers are coming. Uh, I guess Sheets is a similar proof profile. Uh, he just doesn't have any defensive value. So if Mokata comes back, uh, I mean, I, I guess Sheets could could hit his way uh, onto the roster over over Berger. Um, but Berger offers them more defensive versatility and may actually stay on the roster over Sheets if he hits a few more homers. But they're very similar. Um, I guess I guess what, what, yeah, I guess Sheets may strike out less, so maybe Sheets is a superior hitter, but they're similar guys. Yeah, I, I think, especially given the lack of third base options on the wire, I think even just getting someone for a couple of weeks that can help you out at that position is is helpful. So I think Berger is one of those players that creeps up a little bit and at least has some short term value, even if Moncada's. Uh, current status is that he's a couple of weeks away instead of just a mere few days away. I think the hope was that he would have been back by now. I know, yeah. And then in shallower leagues, I wonder if uh, Vaughn gets more run. I mean, it, it's just been really frustrating to, to see his usage. Uh, he's doing so well, um, but he's he's not playing as, as often as, you, as you'd expect. Um, there's a nice uh, sort of three day run here against Minnesota where he, play, he started every game. Maybe that's partially because of, uh, you know, what's going on with injury. So if Vaughn, you know, if he has to face more righties, some of his overall numbers will go down. But uh, if I had to take one of these guys as a hitter, uh, if all three were available, like 100% Vaughn. Oh, yeah. Vaughn by miles, I, I think. And he's he should stabilize playing time-wise. I'm surprised he's had four Four games out of the starting lineup, out of the first 15. He's good enough to be an everyday guy, even in a good White Sox lineup. But a few Those opportunities. Those were weighted a little bit early on where I thought, like, oh, my God, they're only going to play him against lefties. But that has that's evened out a little bit. Ridiculous. I just I, I don't understand it. But I think our thoughts about Tony La Russa being chosen to manage that team, well, I think they were accurate at the time. Our concerns were validated and continue to be validated. I don't think they're making a change, though. Because that's a that's a friendship sort of hire with the owner. <laughs> so the odds of Tony Larusa being shown the door mid season seem pretty low to me. So yeah, that, that ain't happening. Tough break uh, for for you White Sox fans if you are hoping for a change. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. Before we go, get a subscription to The Athletic at just $1 a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash Rates and Barrels. You can read the stuff that Eno has coming out soon. You can read the stuff that he's written already. Everything else we got for fantasy baseball 
regular baseball, NBA playoffs are happening right now, NFL draft is coming up. No matter what you like, we're covering it. $1 a month for the first six months, theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. You can email us, rates and barrels at theathletic.com if you've got questions for a future episode or drop them in underneath this video on YouTube. Be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate a nice review. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We're back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening.